Early Morning, February 28, 1982, Olathe, Kansas. Young Johnson County, Kansas, Assistant District Attorney Paul Morrison is called by police to a duplex at 1000 West Sheridan in Olathe, Kansas. The bedroom is a bloody crime scene. David Harmon, a 25-year-old banker, lies brutally bludgeoned to death in his bed. Years later, Morrison vividly recalls the shocking sight of the body. Quote, You couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman, 10 years old or 80. Unquote. Listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, This case is a sensational one that got lots of media coverage. It's the subject of several true crime TV shows, like 48 Hours and Snapped. People Magazine and several newspapers heavily covered the case as well. I especially relied on an excellent book about the case by New York Times reporter, Marek Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S. The book is A Cold-Blooded Business. It's an exceptional true crime book that I highly recommend. I ordered it on Amazon. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. David Jeffrey Harmon is born in Rochester, New York, to John and Susie Harmon. John is a high school science teacher and Susie a loving mother and homemaker. 
David is their only child. The Harmons are devout Christians who raise David in their faith. They are members of the Church of the Nazarene. The Church is an important part of our story. Just looking at Wikipedia, it's a basic Protestant church organized in Texas in 1908. About two and a half million people today. Christ-centered education is particularly important to their mission, so they have several small universities throughout the country. In Olathe, Kansas, where David is murdered, the school is Mid-America Nazarene College. It's now Mid-America Nazarene University, with a couple of thousand students. I've known a few members of the Church of the Nazarene quite well. In my experience, they were very kind, ethical people. David grows into a big guy, six foot three, couple of hundred pounds. He's an honor student in high school, popular and fun-loving, and devoted to his faith. He meets his future wife, Melinda Lambert, at a church camp in New York when they are teens. They are an item from the day they met. Even though David lives in chilly New York, a suburb of Rochester, and Melinda is in Syracuse, they visit each other often and keep the romance going. After high school, they both go to Olivet Nazarene University in Kankakee, Illinois. They marry in 1977 when both are 20 years old. Melinda's father is a high-ranking member of the church's hierarchy, J. Wilmer Lambert. David is quite a devout member of the Church of the Nazarene and admires his father-in-law a great deal and sees him as a mentor and role model. Dr. Lambert has relocated to Olathe, Kansas. Olathe is located in Johnson County, Kansas, a very affluent suburb in the Kansas City metro area. In the 1980s, the population of Olathe is about 40,000. It's more than triple that now. Mid-America Nazarene College, while small, is a very important part of the Olathe community as our church members. Dr. Lambert is both a respected member of the church and an influential local businessman who owns a number of properties in town. Melinda and David move into one of her father's rental properties. David plans to finish his business degree at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas, maybe an hour's drive from Olathe. Lambert uses his influence to get Melinda, who has a two-year secretarial certificate, office jobs at the college. At the time of the murder, David is a beloved colleague at Patron State Bank and Trust, reportedly a guy who loves to make people laugh and a man who adores his wife. The couple have no children yet.
Melinda Jean Lambert is born 16 July 1957 in California. Her parents are Jay Wilmer and Viva or Viva. It's V-I-V-A. Kind of a cute name. Um, Eveline Lambert. Wilmer is a rising star in the Church of the Nazarene leadership. So Melinda is kind of a Nazarene equivalent of a Jewish princess or a minister's daughter. She follows the rules of the church, no drinking, smoking, drugs, premarital sex, basically tries to be the best daughter she can. Her parents are very proud of her. They approve of David and do what they can to help the couple. At the time of the murder, Wilmer has moved up in the church leadership and has been transferred to Ohio. According to people who knew David and Melinda back in New York, Melinda likes the attention she gets within the church community from being the daughter of someone in her father's high position. She's even known to be a tattletale about members who aren't quite towing the line the way they should. Recently, this characteristic came out in her position at the college. She works in the office of the Dean of Student Affairs at Mid-America Nazarene College. She and another secretary in the office turn in their boss for allegedly having an affair. He does resign in disgrace. Apparently, the other woman also worked in the office. So, not going to waste a lot of sympathy on him, but it does seem like Melinda was pretty proud of her part in all this, which gives us some insight into her character. This will also turn out to be quite ironic. At the office, Melinda is very sociable and even flirtatious. While adequate as a secretary, she is flighty and immature. Sounds like she acts more like a student intern than an office professional. She is the daughter of a high-ranking church official, though, and doesn't shy away from using that to her advantage. At the time of the murder, Melinda and David live in a duplex owned by her father in the thousand block of West Sheridan Street in Olathe. It's a cozy place with a living room and kitchen downstairs and two bedrooms and bath upstairs. They share the duplex with Richard and Gail Bergstrand and their baby. The neighbors get along well as neighbors, although it doesn't seem like they're especially close friends. However, the couple does have one very close friend. Mark Mangelsdorf is born March 31st, 1960, in St. Louis, Missouri, to Ray and Mickey Mangelsdorf. Ray works for Reynolds Aluminum in St. Louis. The couple has three sons. Mark is the middle son. Ray Sr. and Mickey don't have a lot of money, 
but the boys grow up in a good Christian home with a strong work ethic. Mark grows into a very tall young man, over six foot four. Really tall. For non-Americans, that's 1.93 meters. He's slim and athletic. He's also an excellent student and chooses to attend Mid-America Nazarene College. His brother Ray Jr. also starts out there, but chafes under the strict rules at the college and drops out. Mark, on the other hand, absolutely thrives there. He is very active in student affairs and works hard to bring wholesome activities like Christian rock concerts to the campus. In his senior year, starting in 1981, he is elected student body president. This causes him to spend a great deal of time in the office of the Dean of Student Affairs at MNC, where Melinda Harmon works. Everyone in the office enjoys Mark's company, and Melinda and David soon take him under their wings. The couple often have him over for meals. He even moves off campus to live in an apartment just a half a mile from the couple. For non-Americans, 0.8 kilometers. Neighbors often see Mark's car at the duplex. When David isn't working, he enjoys playing racquetball with Mark. They also often participate in floor hockey games with a group of friends. The nearby McDonald's becomes a hangout for the trio. Even though David jokingly worries that it might be getting to be too much for his waistline. By the time of the murder, neighbors and friends and Melinda's office colleagues are starting to voice concerns about the appropriateness of the relationship. Not between Mark and David. They are just good buddies. But the neighbors openly wonder why Mark's car is seen so much at the duplex when David is at work. Just doing laundry, talking, nothing to see her folks. That's Melinda's story. At the dean's office, Melinda's secretary friend has a little talk with her. This is the woman who helped Melinda turn in their old boss for having an affair. She warns Melinda that she really should cool it with Mark. The relationship appears inappropriate. Lots of flirting, love notes, touching. Melinda and Mark are not going to cool it. By the beginning of 1982, they are embroiled in an affair. They both deny to this day a sexual affair. Kind of in the way Bill Clinton didn't have sex with that woman. So, calling total BS on that, they're having a serious affair, and it's sexual. And I believe the husband is figuring that out. This is the outline of what happened Saturday, February 27th, 1982, the day before the murder. 
Listeners, this is mostly from the book, A Cold-Blooded Business. I think the reporter's information is from interviews with lots of people, the police interrogations, and from court proceedings. I wish it was a little more detailed. I think that would shed light on what precipitated the murder. I can think of lots of questions I would love the answers to. But lawyers are involved, so who knows? It is what it is. That morning, David and Mark played racquetball. They stopped at David's bank so he could get some cash. Then they picked up lunch at McDonald's. Back at the duplex, they had lunch with Melinda. She had just finished doing Mark's laundry. Really? Apparently, she did this all the time. That is just so odd to me. Then David went off to do some paperwork for his father-in-law's rental business. He was managing things in Olathe since the in-laws had moved to Ohio. Dr. and Mrs. Lambert do happen to be visiting Olathe that weekend. They are staying at the home of a cousin who is also a high-ranking member of the leadership of the Nazarene Church. In the afternoon, David returns to the duplex to pick up Mark for their regular Saturday afternoon floor hockey game. Mark begs off, saying he must have gotten a bad burger from McDonald's. At the game, a mutual friend asks David to pass a message along to Mark. Mark responds irritably, which is not like him, saying, I'm not Mark's keeper. Mark and Melinda both say, since their relationship is purely platonic, they dozed off, taking separate naps. Separate naps, right. Then they walked over to Mark's apartment. David and Melinda are supposed to be going to another couple's house for dinner that night. Unaccountably, they do not show up and they don't call. The wife calls the Harmon house but gets no answer. She chalks it up to forgetfulness, but that's also really odd. These people are friends of the Harmons from church. Thinking back to the 80s, not showing up for dinner is a huge social faux pas, especially in the close-knit community of their church. I'd really like to know why they didn't show up and why they didn't answer the phone. So that's all we really know about that day until the murder. Whatever happens that evening, at some point, the Harmons apparently go to bed. In the middle of the night on Sunday, February 28th, 1982, maybe about two o'clock in the morning, Gail Bergstrom, the Harmon's next-door neighbor, is awakened by heavy thuds coming from the Harmon's bedroom. She can't quite figure out what the sounds are. She's not 
totally sure they're coming from the bedroom next door. She later describes the sound as somebody smacking meat. Ew. The sounds stop for a minute, then start up again. Gail wakes up her husband, Richard. Richard immediately bangs on the Harmon's door and catches the murderer. No, that's not what happens, like every other husband in the world. He tells her not to worry and to go back to sleep. Like every wife in the world, Gail doesn't go back to sleep and she worries. She gets up and checks on her baby and putters around for quite a while, unable to sleep. After about an hour, their doorbell rings and there is an insistent knocking on the door. Gail wakes up Richard and makes him answer the door. It's Melinda Harmon. She has a slight bruise on her face, and she is very calm. But the story she relates is terrifying. She says that two black men, where have we heard that before, broke into the house and beat David in their bed while they were asleep. She woke up to find them beating David, They forced her to give them the keys to the bank where David works. Then they knocked her out. David is seriously injured and they need to call 911. Law enforcement and medical help arrive almost immediately. While they are waiting, Gail asks Melinda if she would like them to call someone for support. Melinda asked them to call her aunt and uncle, who live there in town, but they are either not home or not answering the phone. So she almost casually asked them to call Mark, their good friend. He shows up quickly. After all, he's only a few blocks away. To Gail and law enforcement, he appears freshly showered, and he is wearing a nice corduroy jacket. He appears concerned, but also very calm. To police and emergency personnel, David is clearly dead. However, Gail makes a mental note that Melinda and Mark shouldn't know that for sure, but neither ever asks about David's condition, even with all the EMS activity going on on the other side of the duplex. Listeners, everybody behaves differently in times of stress. I tend to shut down a little in medical emergencies, People would probably describe me as strangely calm. However, I also ask lots of questions about what's going on. So like Gail, I find their behavior a little off. 
David slept on the left side of the bed. The blood, and there is a lot of it, splatters. Listeners, I probably use blood splatter and blood spatter pretty much interchangeably since I don't know what the crime scene looks like. My understanding is that they both mean blood splashing somewhere. Spatter is smaller, little drops. Splatter is more like drips and trails of blood. So the blood that's coming off the body during the murder, splatter and spatter, is mainly to the left of the bed, even out into the hallway. The crime scene investigators interpret that to mean that the blows came from the right side of the bed, Melinda's side. So probably a killer standing over sleeping Melinda while he bludgeons David across her. Strange. There is blood soaking the bed, lots of it, including on Melinda's pillow. There is little blood on her, except for a few droplets on the hem of her nightgown. Listeners, no way Melinda is in bed asleep when the attack starts. To me, it sounds like she's standing at the foot of the bed watching the attack, at least some of the attack. David's face is completely caved in. There are no evident defensive wounds, so most likely David is asleep face up when he's attacked and incapacitated right from the start. Then he's bludgeoned repeatedly. The coroner estimates 15 or 20 blows with a heavy instrument like a crowbar. One of the CSIs notes that there was likely some staging at the crime scene. The sheets are found pulled up to David's neck. Since most of the blood spray and pooling was under the sheets, it appears that someone pulled the sheets up after David was dead. He also finds some blood smears on the bottom of the shower curtain, possibly indicating that the killer or killers cleaned up in there before leaving. At the scene, a distant DA, Morrison, and the rest of law enforcement are already uneasy with Melinda's story about a bank robbery. They look at the shocking condition of the victim's body and realize this is overkill, an unnecessarily brutal murder indicating a personal motive. Melinda and Mark are questioned without lawyers. 
Their stories about Saturday are pretty consistent, except that Mark leaves out the part about walking to his apartment with Melinda. Melinda sticks to her story. Police are already skeptical and hope to continue with the questioning. But Melinda's father soon shows up and whisks her away. When police come to the house where Melinda and her family are staying, he only allows them to interview her in his presence. He soon gets angry and kicks them out. The funeral is held only two days after the murder. David's parents are barely able to get to Olathe from New York in time. They are kept away from Melinda and her family. When they leave Kansas, heartbroken, they will get one letter from their daughter-in-law. They will not see her again for many years. Mark keeps repeating his story and finally gets to go home. He agrees to let police search his apartment. On the day of the murder, a police dog follows a trail from the Harmon's patio to a dumpster near Mark's apartment. They find a little fresh blood on Mark's rug and in his vacuum cleaner, as well as quite a few letters from Melinda to Mark. This is the 80s. They can't do much more than say the blood samples are consistent with David's blood. The letters say a lot about love and friendship and caring. They show a deep closeness between Mark and Melinda, but he says that type of flowery language between friends is common in their faith. Yeah, listeners, I haven't read the letters, but I bet they show a lot of feelings a married woman shouldn't be having for a man who isn't her husband. In spite of their misgivings, the police do their due diligence and investigate the robbery story. They stake out the bank, hoping to catch the robbers. Unsurprisingly, no robbers ever appear. There are a few other suspects. A guy who worked at Patron's Bank had been caught stealing. It was reported that he might have a grudge against David. There was even a mental patient who made wild allegations about committing the murder. Another suspect was a student at Mid-America Nazarene College. Suspicions about him arose when police found a letter written by him on the Harmon's nightstand. The document had apparently been taken from the student's disciplinary file at the college. It threatened to bash someone's head in. Why it's there is anybody's guess. My guess is that it's Melinda's dumb attempt at misdirection of some sort She's clearly the one with access to the files. Of course, that begs the question, why the robbery story? I don't know. All these theories of the crime are quickly discounted, leaving lovers Melinda and Mark as the only suspects. They are not talking to law enforcement or the press. 
the grieving widow is in Ohio under the watchful eyes of her parents. Mark Mangelsdorf has a lawyer. For his part, he goes back to finish his senior year at MNC. His French, his friends there staunchly believe in his innocence and support him. It's inconceivable to them that such a good person could be involved in a murder. Mark Mangelsdorf graduates in May 1982 with a degree in business and an offer to attend prestigious Harvard Business School. After a few months, the news stories about the case taper off. Suspects are mentioned vaguely. Please continue to pursue all leads, etc. Behind the scenes, there is some conflict between law enforcement and the Johnson County Attorney's Office. As often happens, politics is something of a factor in this case. Law enforcement wants to go ahead with the case. They think there's enough evidence against Melinda and Mark. The county attorney's not so sure. In Kansas, the prosecutor is called the county attorney. This is an elected position. The county attorney in 1982 in Johnson County is Dennis Moore. As a Democrat, he is something of a rarity as an elected official in Johnson County, which is heavily Republican. To keep getting reelected, he has to be a pretty conservative, law and order type of Democrat. Hacking off influential people like Melinda's father and others in the large, politically active Church of the Nazarene community is not something he probably wants to do if he doesn't have to. Moore is re-elected county attorney a number of times over the years. In 1999, he is actually elected to the U.S. Congress, the first Democrat in decades to do that in Johnson County. To his credit, Moore does keep the investigation going into Melinda and Mark. He even lets on publicly that they are pretty sure they know the guilty parties, but they just don't have enough evidence to proceed to trial. That doesn't stop persistent rumors that the hierarchy of the Church of the Nazarene and Mid-America Nazarene College are putting pressure on them to cover up Melinda and Mark's guilt. Similar to the way the Catholic Church covered up pedophile priests, Marek Fuchs, in his book, A Cold-Blooded Business, makes a case for that, at least as far as Melinda's father goes. 
I don't doubt that Dr. Lambert used his influence as a prominent citizen to try to get the investigation of his daughter shut down. I believe he and his wife convinced themselves that she was perfectly innocent. He feels perfectly justified protecting his daughter. On the other hand, I doubt he got very far with that. Remember, the Dean of Student Affairs had to pretty publicly resign over an office affair. I doubt that the church is going to cover up a murder. They are going to be on the side of law enforcement. If law enforcement can prove the two are guilty, then prosecuting them is the right thing to do as far as the church is concerned. A reporter for the local Olathe newspaper, which I think now is part of the Kansas City Star, addresses the rumors in 1995. The reporter is Andy Hoffman, who wrote the excellent book, Family Affairs, that I used in the evil stepmother murder of an episode of Prison City Murders. I'm sure reporters love to find cover-ups, but Hoffman really presents a good case that law enforcement pursued the case vigorously, that there was no pressure from the Church of the Nazarene to cover up anybody's guilt. The frustration wasn't from political pressure. It was from lack of evidence. No murder weapon, no witnesses, consistent stories from both suspects. Understandably, this rankles law enforcement and young assistant county attorney Paul Morrison, who was in charge of the case. By the way, Morrison is a Republican with his own political ambitions. More about him later on. My sense is that Morrison would love to have brought a case against Melinda and Mark, but in the judgment of the county attorney's office, there really wasn't a strong enough case for conviction. So the case goes cold for over 25 years. Not long after the murder, Mark Mangelsdorf starts dating classmate Susie Johnson. He graduates in May when he and Susie received the 1982 Pioneer Awards as the most outstanding male-female students at Mid-America Nazarene College. They marry a year later. Mark graduates from Harvard Business School and begins a stellar career in business becoming very successful and a wealthy executive. One of his high-profile jobs was with the Pepsi Company when they partnered with Starbucks to bring their signature Frappuccino to supermarkets and convenience stores in those little bottles. 
I'm not a coffee drinker at all, but even I'm familiar with the little bottles of light brown coffee. Mark was in charge of getting that product to market. He accomplished a major coup in the industry when he was able to do that in the mid-90s. Everyone Mark worked with sang his praises. His colleagues thought he was brilliant, and people who worked for him invariably said he was a thoughtful, ethical, considerable boss. His extremely successful business career did come at some personal cost. He and Susie had three children and were happily married for several years, but over time the marriage suffered. It's hard to say what happens in a marriage from the outside. Of course, I'm always willing to speculate. Apparently, Mark started pulling away from the Church of the Nazarene not long after he married Susie, not overtly in a super rebellious way. He's not doing cocaine or denouncing the church in public, just little by little not being as devout. I think Susie was still very committed to her faith, while Mark started gravitating toward the more worldly way of life he encountered as a high-powered executive. I wonder if he didn't start to put Susie down a little for not being more sophisticated and accomplished. She was a stay-at-home mom while the children were young. Mark and Susie divorced in 1997, an amicable divorce. Mark is quite generous to Susie and the children. Mark soon starts dating Christina Freiberg, a rising star at PepsiCo. She will become the marketing director at the diet beverage division of the company. They marry in 1999. About this time, Mark decides to cash in on his success at Pepsi and branch out on his own a little. He leaves Pepsi with millions. He wants to try his hand at some venture capitalism. Mark is pretty high on a company called Webvan, a startup in the online grocery business. He becomes regional vice president for the company. Susie gets a job as an executive for Frito-Lay, and they settle down in Plano, Texas, a very affluent suburb of Dallas. Webvan isn't the great success Mark had hoped for, maybe a little ahead of the times, but even when that company goes out of business, Mark is not hurt much by the experience. He becomes the chief operating officer for a uniform rental company. He has to commute from Virginia to Texas on weekends, but he and Susie make it work. In the early 2000s, they're living the dream. In the meantime, Melinda stays with her parents getting over her husband's murder. 
After a couple of years, she enrolls at Ohio State University. There she meets another Mark, Mark Raish, R-A-I-S-C-H, a dental student, who shares her faith. He is a few years younger than she is, but is soon smitten with the young widow. They marry in 1986 and have a son and daughter. Dr. Mark Raish, DDS, starts a thriving cosmetic dentistry practice in Columbus, Ohio. Melinda and her mother both help in Mark's office. Mark and Melinda Raish become pillars of the Church of the Nazarene community there in Ohio. Melinda is known as a devoted wife and mother. Stereotypical, well-to-do suburban mom. By 2001, the murder of David Harmon is a long-suppressed memory for both Melinda Raish and Mark Mangelsdorf. That will change when law enforcement knocks on doors in Ohio and Texas. In 2001, Paul Morrison is now the elected county attorney in Johnson County, Kansas. Like his predecessor, Congressman Dennis Moore, Morrison is also hiring higher elected office. He has built a good reputation as a hard-nosed prosecutor, including successful prosecutions of two Kansas serial killers, John Robinson and Richard Grissom. I have both these cases on my list to cover on the podcast, but they're pretty gruesome, so it might be a while. The Harmon case always bothered Morrison, and he reopens it, mostly hoping there might be some DNA evidence they could use to strengthen the case. He also sends detectives out to interview the suspects, Melinda and Mark, mostly hoping one of them might have an attack of conscience and confess. Neither one of these things happens. Unfortunately, the case evidence was, you guessed it, damaged in a flood. Isn't that just maddening? It happens way too often. Doesn't it seem like it would be worth a few extra bucks to put evidence in murder cases into watertight containers instead of cardboard boxes? At the very least, get some plastic bins from Target. Anyway, the DNA from the blood at Mark's apartment can only be determined with 98% certainty to be David's. And it may not even be blood. It could be sweat or some other bodily fluid. Listeners, I should probably do some research on this. In court cases now, we hear DNA evidence 87 gazillion to one odds that it's the victim or the perpetrator. Um, 
98% isn't anywhere near that, but it's still pretty solid to me. I guess Mark can probably come up with a good reason why Mark's DNA would be at his place. They were good friends, but still, if fresh blood was found and it's probably David's, that's compelling. Melinda chats with detectives when they knock on her door. She invites them in and makes coffee. After she makes arrangements for the children, you know, something's come up, excuse, she even goes to the sheriff's office to talk with them. Melinda is living in Delaware, Ohio, a nice suburb of Columbus, Ohio. If you watch any of the TV shows or video clips of the case, the Raish home is a lovely upscale house. Again, living the dream. Detectives get a sense that Melinda might be trying to get the murder off her conscience, but not to the point that she wants to admit her own guilt. Law enforcement believes she and Mark conspired to kill David. Melinda certainly doesn't admit to anything like that. She does, however, change her story a little. Now she says she remembers one shadowy figure wearing a mask. Little by little, she also starts to give them more details about her relationship with Mark. Still no sex, but she admits the relationship was inappropriate. Finally, she says she knew, quote, in her heart, that the shadowy figure was Mark. She never admits to being part of the murder plot. The only thing she feels guilty about is not stopping the inappropriate relationship. She hints she might know a little more, but then she says she needs to talk to a lawyer before she says anything else. The detectives have gotten all they can from Melinda Lambert Harmon Raish. There is some worry that Melinda will warn Mark that detectives are talking to her to preclude this. Morrison decides to offer a plea deal to Melinda, plead as an accessory, and testify against Mark. He figures with a deal on the table like that, it's not in Melinda's interest to warn Mark about what's going on. The detectives then go to Plano, Texas and knock on Mark's door. He is visibly shaken by their appearance, but he has the presence of mind to lawyer up and lawyer up expensively. When all is said and done, 
detectives never get much out of Mark Mangelsdorf, the suspected killer of David Harmon. They do have a warrant for his DNA and collect a sample. They leave Mark looking concerned and his wife Christina looking baffled. Mark and Christina have discussed the case before, but only in the sense of how terrible. Years ago, my best friend was murdered. In his parting words, one of the detectives warns Christina to do some research on the case. So the legal system goes along its way for a couple of years. Melinda never does agree to a deal, and it's a pretty sweet deal. Mark and Christina have a baby daughter and move to Pelham, New York, in Westchester County, New York. Westchester County is a very wealthy suburb of New York City, home to Martha Stewart, the Clintons, and many other rich people, some famous, some not. Christina has gone back to a highly paid position as an executive at PepsiCo. Mark made another killing when the company he worked for was bought out. He is now in an executive slot with a fabulously successful conglomerate called Parmalat. He is in line to become CEO of the company if all goes well. Actually, listeners, things won't go well. Parmalat is apparently fiddling with their books. The company becomes known as the Enron of Europe. This doesn't end up reflecting any on Mark, however. He comes out of the financial mess pretty much unscathed and now works as a highly paid consultant for different industries. Mark's ex-wife, Susie, becomes a professional counselor and therapist, and she goes back to live in Olathe. Mark regularly flies out to see his three children there. Ironically, his kids go to school with Paul Morrison's kids. Finally, in December 2003, Melinda is indicted for first-degree murder. Mark is named as an unindicted co-conspirator. Now things are getting serious. The trial is set to begin in the spring of 2005. Melinda is represented by two respected Kansas defense attorneys, Tom Bath and Randy Austin. Tom is a former prosecutor. He was the prosecutor who worked so hard to convict the murderous professor in one of the prison city murderous cases. 
Not long before the trial, on April 4, 2005, Mark is arrested at his home in Pelham. Christina, pregnant with their second child, is there for the arrest. Mark's lawyer is Mickey Sherman, a famous defense attorney. I was familiar with the name. When Kennedy relative Michael Skakel was on trial for the murder of Martha Moxley in Greenwich, Connecticut, Sherman was his attorney and all over the news for that case. He also represented Alex Kelly, a wealthy young man who fled the country to avoid a rape trial. So there's a very high-profile lawyer representing Mark. The arrest is not unexpected. It would be troubling to the prosecutor in Melinda's case if her co-conspirator were still an unindicted co-conspirator. David's father, John Harmon, attends Melinda's trial. This is the first time he has seen her since the funeral. His wife, another Susie, Susie Harmon, sadly has passed away, never seeing justice for David. Melinda's father does not attend the trial. He will pass away in 2012. Supporting Melinda is her husband, another Mark, Mark Raish. He is in court for her every day. Her children, 11 and 13 at the time, are home in Ohio. Christina, visibly pregnant, also attends the trial in support of her husband. The trial begins April 12, 2005. Politics will now rear its head again in this case. Paul Morrison is running for Kansas Attorney General. He has made the calculated risk to switch parties to run against the incumbent. Morrison is now a Democrat running for statewide office in Kansas, a state not known for electing Democrats very often. A loss in the David Harmon case would be disastrous for his chances. His case consists of Melinda's changing story about the night of the murder, possibly shaky blood evidence, some love letters, and the overall circumstances of the crime. Morrison knows he is making a big gamble trying the case after all these years, but he rolls the dice. The motive presented by the prosecution at trial is that Melinda and Mark wanted to be together, but without the scandal a divorce would cause in her devout church of the Nazarene faith community. The changing stories are shown to the jury, and the blood evidence, again not 100% conclusive. Two neurologists testify that if Melinda were truly knocked out for over an hour, the blow would certainly cause significant memory loss for the time before the blow was struck, possibly even several hours of memory loss before the blow was struck. 
after the prosecution finishes its case, the general feeling in the courtroom is that things could go either way. The most anticipated moment of the trial is the testimony of Mark Mangelsdorf. Mark does very well on direct. He is confident, low-key, firmly denying that he was ever romantically involved with Melinda and denying that he had anything to do with the murder. He insists he was just a very close friend of Melinda and David. On cross-examination, Morrison tries to rattle Mark, but he really doesn't. There's certainly no sudden confession, but Mark comes across as glib and over-rehearsed. His denials of the affair fall especially flat. On Monday, May 3rd, 2005, Melinda Raich is found guilty of first-degree murder. Her sentencing is set for July. Mark is not in the courtroom. He flew in just for his testimony and has already returned to New York to be with his family. Mickey Sherman talks to the press and emphasizes that they are confident that Mark's trial for the murder will have a different result. In spite of this public face, Mark's defense team is worried, and they should be. The case against Mark is basically the same as the one against Melinda, except that Mark is accused of actually committing the murder, and Melinda was just convicted. Plus, she may testify at Mark's trial. On the prosecution side, they are relieved to get a guilty verdict in Melinda's trial. They are also realistic enough to understand that the trial of Mark Mangelsdorf could go the other way. Then they would have Melinda, who didn't actually commit the murder in jail, with the murderer free to live his privileged life in Westchester County, New York. So Paul Morrison starts negotiations with Melinda's lawyers, offering the same deal they presented before trial. Plead to a lesser charge in exchange for testimony against Mark. This is a good deal. But Melinda keeps balking. Morrison is almost ready to pull the deal when, for some reason, nobody really knows exactly why. Melinda's side gets the idea that the prosecution may be about to discover evidence concerning the murder weapon. The prosecution knows this because they are, of course, recording Melinda's phone calls from jail. They obtain a warrant to search her cell and find letters in which Melinda admits that she was part of the murder plot. It was planned. And she knew about a week before that Mark had bought a weapon. 
even though she didn't know what happened to it. Listeners, not that I want people to be better murderers, but think where this case would be if Melinda hadn't insisted on vomiting all her personal feelings out on paper all the time. Tip to criminals, don't write things down. Now Morrison just needs to wait Melinda out. He knows she is ready for the deal. She soon agrees to testify at Mark's trial against him. Now the case takes a turn that makes me a little angry. Maybe politics again. Mark's trial is scheduled for May 2006. This is just a few months from the November election, in which Paul is locked in a bitter race for Kansas Attorney General. If he loses Mark's case, he will be in dire straits politically. He is already being criticized for making the deal with Melinda. Plus, even if he wins the case, he will have spent a lot of time on the trial that he could have spent on the campaign trail. So he caves and offers Mark a deal to plead guilty to second-degree murder. He has to say he's guilty and waive appeal rights. The bottom line eligible for parole in five years. David's father, John, is not consulted about the deal. Listeners, in my opinion, there was a very good chance that Mark would be convicted. I actually think There was a pretty good case the first time around to convict both of them. But after after her conviction, Melinda is willing to testify. And to me, Mark's case is going to be a slam dunk. I guess... They were worried that Melinda, she is pretty flighty and unstable. Possibly they're worried her testimony won't go over well. I'm not sure, but I really think they should have gone ahead and tried Mark. At the very least, not offered him such a sweet deal. It's really outrageous in my mind. And John Harmon certainly thought so too. Mark's side knows about the deal with Melinda, and they are very worried that her testimony will convict Mark. So they take the deal. It's too good to pass up. In February 2006, 
Mark pleads guilty to the murder of his friend, David Harmon. But did he really? A statement by Melinda is read at sentencing that details what led up to the murder, the murder itself, and the aftermath. It's very clear. Officially, Mark agrees with this statement and admits his guilt. But then he backpedals on that. Outside the courtroom, once sentence has been pronounced, he says taking the plea was, quote, the best way to move forward and get things behind us. John Harmon does get to address Melinda and Mark. Melinda, to her credit, accepts responsibility for the crime. But even facing the victim's father, Mark minces his words. There's no, oh, I'm sorry, I beat your son to death. It's all, I'm sorry for your loss. I wish I could change what happened. He never mans up. It's really disgraceful. Then he spends a few minutes with Christina and goes off to prison. John Harmon is left with a pale imitation of justice for his brutally battered only child. Okay, listeners, it's time for me to speculate wildly and give my opinions. What do I really think happened in this case? Melinda's statement that they read in court is pretty much in line with what we believe we know. It's okay. She and Mark are obsessed with each other. After a few months of sneaking around, they decide that murdering David is their best option to be together the way they want to be. They consider staging an accident and finally decide on the fake robbery story. Melinda makes sure the patio door is unlocked before she and David go to bed. When Mark is killing David with the crowbar, she watches just for a moment and then runs downstairs in horror. Mark takes the keys and hits Melinda barely enough to leave a bruise. She waits for at least an hour to give Mark time to get away and clean up. She's the one who covers Mark up in a weird gesture of remorse. Then they both stick to the story of the robbery. The last time they see each other is at David's funeral. According to Melinda, David's last words to her at the funeral are when he whispers, I got rid of the crowbar. Okay, I can buy most of that. There still are some loose ends. I wonder why she and David didn't show up for dinner at their friend's house. If you know there's going to be a murder that night, 
Wouldn't you want to act as normal as possible? Why bring attention to it? If the friend called the duplex, why didn't anybody answer? Supposedly they're home. I don't doubt that Mark and Melinda talked about killing David, but I think something happened that particular weekend that brought everything to a head. I really think David might have figured out what was going on and gave his wife and phony friend an ultimatum. I think she and Mark go to his apartment and stay for a good while, probably deciding that tonight has to be the night. David might even have kicked her out, or there might have been some kind of showdown that night. For me, the motive of avoiding a divorce is just not enough. This was a savage murder. David's face is obliterated. There's rage here. I do agree that Mark is the one who did the beating, but I think something caused the murder. It wasn't just, okay, now's the time. In other murders like this, when a lover kills the husband, sometimes the wife claims that she's being abused. That might lead to an attack like this. But considering how much time Melinda and Mark and David spent together, it's hard to believe she could convince him of something like that. There were rumors that Mark and David might have been involved in a homosexual relationship. Absolutely no evidence of that. But we could speculate that Mark was trying to exercise his own demons by destroying David. I really don't think so, though. I don't think that has anything to do with this. Here's what I really think. David was catching on. Maybe not to the point of having it out with Mark and Melinda, but at least dropping hints. Melinda's whole identity is wrapped up in being daddy's wonderful little girl. There's no way she can go to him and say she's fallen in love with another man and wants a divorce. Dr. J. Wilmer Latham would tell her to get a hold of herself, stop the affair immediately, and go back to her marriage. David would likely go along with that. So if he even hinted that he might go to her father, Melinda would be desperate to keep that from happening. On his part, Mark is a 21-year-old male, madly in lust with an older woman. He considers her his soulmate. Plus, he has a lot to lose if the affair is exposed, not the least of which is expulsion from school. Thus, these two twisted people commit a brutal murder. 
for nothing. There is a psychological phenomenon called folie deux, a shared madness. It comes up from time to time in some famous crimes like Bonnie and Clyde and Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo, those awful murders, which I will never do on this podcast. The idea is that a sort of perverted chemistry develops between two people with a close emotional bond. Sometimes that leads to violence when the bond is threatened. Some psychologists theorize that each person apart from the other might just go through life behaving relatively normally if they never meet that other person. I think this case might be an example of that, a shared madness. Oh, and one other problem with Melinda's story, maybe a couple. I think she might have let Mark into the house through the patio door. And no way Mark told her he got rid of the crowbar at the funeral. He told her, I never want to see you again. I believe that Mark was genuinely shocked by his capacity for violence. The only way for Mark to cope with this knowledge was to lock the whole experience away for good. I don't know how someone does that. I've mentioned that I don't think I'm crazy, so it's hard for me to think like a crazy person. My best guess in Mark's case is extreme self-delusion and rationalization. I think Melinda was devastated, but by the loss of Mark, not David. That's what her grief is all about. I suspect she has never been particularly stable or mature emotionally. In the aftermath of the murder, she eventually was able to deceive herself to the point that she could almost believe that she really wasn't responsible for the crime. I'm not sure whether her father suspected or not. Um... I just watched a true crime show. I'm, I'm not sure which one. Um, I think on Investigation Discovery, maybe um, See No Evil. It was about a woman who gets her boyfriend to kill her husband for the insurance money. The police send the woman's father in to talk to her. He bluntly says something like, you're telling me you had something to do with this? She sort of 
hangs her head. The dad just looks like he's been punched in the stomach. And he says, arrest her and walks out. Frankly, that's what Melinda's dad should have done. Gotten the truth of, out of her and let her face the consequences. I know she's his daughter, but in my opinion, he was thinking more about himself and his reputation. He didn't want to know the truth. And that's truly shameful. Mark Mangelsdorf is sent to Lansing Correctional Facility near Leavenworth. At six foot four inches, he's a pretty imposing guy who looks like he can take care of himself. Plus, he's not a convicted child molester. He's the murderer of another man. So in the sick prison hierarchy, he's not someone who is a major target of inmate violence. On top of that, Mark is pretty likable and he has lots of money. Most inmates would probably want to be on his good side. He behaves well in prison. There are in-house businesses at Lansing that provide employment to inmates. Mark was able to advise the business owners and help them greatly improve their operations and profitability. He even consults with some local businesses in the area, providing them with his expertise in management. Christina gets an apartment in Lansing so she and the children can visit him often. Melinda Raish is sent to the Women's Correctional Facility in Topeka, where she reportedly conducts Bible study classes and mentors the troubled young women there. She sees her family regularly and speaks with them on the phone often. Now, listeners, are you ready to get really angry about this case? Mark and Melinda are both out of jail after serving less than 10 years for a brutal murder. As far as I can tell, they both return to the loving arms of their families. Melinda back to Ohio and Mark back to his privileged life in Westchester County, New York. Thank you, Paul Morrison. As for Morrison, he was elected Attorney General of Kansas. Early in his term, a woman reported him for sexual harassment and other improprieties. He admits to a tawdry office affair, and he did resign, but never admitted any other wrongdoing. He is now a prominent criminal defense attorney in Olathe. David and his mom have postings on findagrave.com if you would like to leave them 
virtual flowers. John Harmon remarried a few years ago. From what I could find, he still lives in New York. I hope he's found some peace over the past few years. He and his new wife share the same strong faith and express forgiveness in interviews about the case, although I think there is a tinge of bitterness that Mark and Melinda got off so easily after they snuffed out the life of John's only child. Personally, thinking about Mark and Melinda just infuriates me. They commit a blood-curdling murder, then get to live normal lives, have children. Over 20 years of this, their punishment is a few years in prison. They seem to have quite an easy time in prison. Then they get out and return to living privileged, comfortable lives ensconced in the bosoms of their loving families. It's just maddening. And the loving, devoted, supportive spouses who make that possible, sorry, they're sick. They're deluding themselves. They should look reality in the face and see that they're married to vicious murderers. That's not something to just get past and move forward. Get a divorce and cut them out of the children's lives. I know, judgmental, but that's how I feel about it. I have three words for John Harmon. Wrongful death suit. Get the Goldman family's lawyers and turn them loose to make Mark and Melinda's lives as miserable as OJ's. Okay, I'll take a deep breath and try to remember that God will judge their eternal souls. The primary source for this episode was the book A Cold-Blooded Business by Marek Fuchs. Available at bookstores, a great read, highly recommended for true crime fans. I ordered it from Amazon. The Kansas City Star and Andy Hoffman, the Olathe reporter, provided excellent contemporaneous newspaper coverage of the case, as well as the local Kansas City TV stations. I also got some background from the Tampa Bay Times, Rochester Democrat, and the Zanesville Recorder. And of course, the usual research sites like Wikipedia and Ancestry.com. The case is featured on several TV shows, it's been a few years since I've seen them. For sure, CBS 48 Hours and Snapped on Oxygen. And one of the shows on Investigation Discovery Channel. 
these were the ones I could find online. I I didn't find any podcasts on the case. I they probably are out there. I just did a a quick Google search. David Harmon murder case podcast. And I didn't see any, but um, they may be out there. The links for all these and probably some other stuff are out there if you want to dig into the case yourself. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders at gmail.com or comment on the cases on the podcast website prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.